Well, this morning we're going to be looking together at Psalm 16, as you can see there in the bulletin, uh, all 11 verses. So if you'd like to turn there and follow along, Psalm 16. Psalm 16, beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy word. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Almighty God, without you we can do nothing. So we pray that you would illumine today your sacred word by your Holy Spirit, that our minds may be open to receive it, our hearts taught to love it, and our wills strengthened to obey it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as I'm sure you're well aware, uh, the Psalter is a collection of 150 songs of Israel, collected over time, composed over time, and arranged into five books. And so Psalm 16, our psalm this morning, is found in Book 1 of the Psalter. In, a, in the midst of these other psalms that are quite bleak, um, most of them are laments and cries for help that surround Psalm 16. But Psalm 16 is different. It's not like these laments and cries for help. It does, of course, contain a cry for help right at the beginning in verse 1. Preserve me, O God. But after that initial plea, David spends the rest of the psalm extolling God's goodness and rejoicing in the ways that God has blessed him. And because God is so good, David can be glad in any trouble that he faces. And that's the main point for us to understand today from Psalm 16. Because God is exceedingly good, Christians have reason for gladness, no matter the circumstances. Verse 1, like I said, shows us David is in some kind of trouble here, but his focus in Psalm 16 is not on that trouble as it is in other psalms, but on his gracious God and all the reasons God has given him to be glad even in the midst of his trouble. So we'll see four reasons that David is glad as we go through this psalm. Four ways that God has shown his goodness. First, God's good covenant, especially in the first four verses. Second, God's good providence in verses 5 and 6. Third, God's good counsel in verses 7 and 8. And finally, God's good promise in the last three verses. But the foremost evidence of God's goodness we see at the beginning is his covenant. First, in verse 2, David recognizes Yahweh as his covenant Lord. You are my Lord, David says. Why should God hear this prayer that David is about to speak? 
What right does David have to approach the throne of this majestic creator king? Because the Lord is his God. And he's using the covenant name here. He's saying to Yahweh, you are my Lord. So he's thinking covenantally. He's remembering the promises that Yahweh had made. Uh, Not just those to Israel, but those earlier promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the former promises of grace. And perhaps David is also recalling the promises Yahweh made to him to establish his throne and his kingdom and his house forever in God's own presence. But what about us? Can we claim the same thing that David has claimed, that Yahweh is our God? Are the promises made to Abraham and David ours as well? Well, the answer to those questions used to be a firm no. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands. You were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were hopeless and we had nothing to do with God. His promises were not for us. But Paul continues, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So all the gracious promises made to the Old Covenant saints find their yes and amen in Jesus, and Christ has brought us near. So in him, now, you and I, who were once enemies of God, can claim this covenantal Lord as our God with David. We believe the same gospel that he did, and so we can also rejoice in the goodness of that same covenant Lord. God has given himself to us. He continues to give himself to us each week as we hear his word and whenever we receive his sacraments. He constantly reminds us that we are his and he is ours. And just like David in Psalm 16, we can declare that nothing else is good apart from knowing this God. Ultimately, God himself is the sole source of our well-being. If every other good thing is taken from us, we know that God will not be taken from us because he's faithful to his promises. He's given himself to us and he will never leave. That is every believer's first and primary source of gladness. In verse 3, David shifts from the covenant Lord to the covenant community. He refers to this covenant community as saints, uh, talking about the righteous Israelites who also believe the promises, who also claim Yahweh as their Lord. And he also describes them with the Hebrew term mighty ones, translated here as excellent ones. This term, mighty ones, was mostly used to refer to spiritual beings like angels or uh, pagan gods, or if it was referring to humans, uh, they were talking about kings and princes and people with political power. But David provides a new definition here. He says that those who are truly mighty and excellent are not the Canaanite deities, they're not the kings of the surrounding nations, but those who trust in God. And David's grateful he's not alone in his faith. He rejoices there are others who claim Yahweh as their God. They're not the majority, but God has chosen them for himself. They're not mighty by the world's standards, but they belong to the almighty king. 
They're far from perfect, but their trust in the Lord, who is perfect, qualifies them for David's respect. They're the covenant community. And as we hear David's words in Psalm 16, we are reminded to be thankful for the church. Not only the the Catholic church, the universal church around the world, but our own congregation. This congregation here, those we have the privilege of knowing and worshiping with. It's easy for us to lose sight of the gift that this community is. God has given himself to us, and he's also given us one another. In fact, he often gives himself to us through one another. He shows us his love and his care for us as we love and care for each other. It's often easier to focus, though, on each other's sins and and weaknesses than on each other's strengths and service. We can be tempted to view our brothers and sisters in Christ negatively. On the other hand, we might also be tempted to idealize church fellowship, uh, expecting never to be sinned against. After all, this is a redeemed community. But if we have that expectation, we'll be disappointed. But David is reminding us, despite our differences, despite our weaknesses and sins and shortcomings, the Lord has called us all out of darkness and into his light. He's the covenant Lord of each one of us. And he's brought us together in this community. And that's something to hold on to and to rejoice in. David recognized the covenant community as a good gift from God. And it helped him to feel glad, even in times of trouble. So we've seen David acknowledge his covenant Lord and his covenant community. And in verse 4, we see David's commitment to covenant worship. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So in contrast to the appreciation he's just expressed for believers, for the saints, he's now expressing uh, disdain for idolaters. He's talking about those who have abandoned the true God for false gods. That's a bad decision and it has bad results. Those results may be seen in this life uh, with mental or physical pain, or they may not. But one sure result of abandoning the true God and his worship is anguish in the next life. The idolaters pour out drink offerings of blood, but David won't. He won't participate in false religion. He won't even allow the name of a false god to cross his lips. He's expressing utter devotion to Yahweh. But we must understand verse 4 is not David's lapse into a spell of self-righteousness. He's not proclaiming his perfection in contrast to all those other people who are doing it wrong. Instead, he's simply declaring where he stands. And where he stands is on God's side. He won't tolerate any form of false worship. So, while those neighboring nations and even some Israelites chase after these other gods and perform those ceremonies... David refuses to invoke or worship any false deity. To put it positively, David's thankful that he's able to worship the true God truly. He's expressing gratitude for not having to participate in these pointless and powerless pagan rituals. Those people are deceived and they're deceiving themselves. But on the other hand, David is delighted as he worships Yahweh, the true God. Likewise, all Christians should feel joy as we get to gather each Lord's Day two times every week to worship the true God with his people according to his own instructions. That's a huge blessing. 
that we shouldn't take for granted. So we can be glad knowing we haven't been left to the hopeless task of constructing our own religion or following one of the religions of the world. Both of those paths lead to dead ends, but instead, by God's grace, we've been placed on the path to everlasting life. So David is glad for God's good covenant, for the covenant Lord, the covenant community, and also covenant worship. The second goodness of God David focuses on in Psalm 16 is God's good providence. We see this especially in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion, he says. So when Canaan, the promised land, was distributed uh, between the 12 tribes, they each got a portion of land. Well, really the 11 tribes, because the Levites did not receive a portion of land. Their inheritance, their portion, was Yahweh himself. They were, they were the tribe that was assigned to carry out various priestly duties, and so they didn't get any land. What was the meaning of this? Well, each tribe's land was their source of life. It's where they would live, it's where they would grow crops, it's where they would keep their animals. It would provide for them, but the message to the Levites was that Yahweh himself was their life source. And David is claiming the same for himself in Psalm 16:5, and we can claim the same for ourselves. In the New Covenant, there's no apportioned land for us. Jesus didn't divvy up the world among the 12 apostles. Rather, as Peter says in his first epistle, we'll talk about it this evening, the whole church is a royal priesthood. So in a sense, we're all like the Levites. God himself is our portion. We may be sojourners and exiles in this world without any land to truly call our home. But like Abraham, we look forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and designer is God. He is our inheritance, and heaven is our home, and that's what we have to look forward to. David also says that the Lord is his cup. In the symbolism of the scriptures, a person's cup was that person's destiny. For example, in Psalm 11, the cup of the wicked is filled with fire and sulfur and scorching wind. That's what they're destined to drink, so to speak. But here, David is announcing his cup is filled with ultimate good. His cup is filled with the Lord, and his destiny is continued covenantal relationship with that God. In the final part of verse 5, David says that Yahweh holds his lot. This is a way of speaking about God's providence. Not only is God his inheritance, but David also knows that whatever comes his way in life is from the Lord. And he takes comfort in that. He doesn't hold his own life in his hands. God who loves him, the covenant Lord that is his, who's given himself to David and has made promises to him. This gracious covenant Lord is the one who holds his lot, who holds his life. And verse 6 reiterates that point. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David has inherited some land, and he surveyed it, and his conclusion is that it is beautiful. His portion is God. What could be better than that? So in these two verses, David has not only focused on the goodness of God, but also the goodness of God's providence. Yahweh is ultimately his lot and his portion. He knows his inheritance is kept safe for him in heaven. But because of that, he also knows that no matter what his earthly inheritance appears to be, it is good because the one who apportioned it is good. 
And he declares this, remember, even though things were not going well for him. He opened this psalm with a cry for help. Things aren't good in David's life. And yet he still writes this confession of trust. Which reminds us again that no matter what we're experiencing, anything from utter delight to utter tragedy, from riches to poverty, sickness to health, despair to elation, anything at all, the boundaries of our inheritance have been determined by God who loves us. So while we certainly don't rejoice in the suffering we experience, we can have joy knowing that our Lord is in control. He's on our side. He's by our side. And one day we will inherit him and see him face to face in glory. And that leads us right into the next goodness of God David focuses on. In verse 7 and 8, we see David is glad to know that he has access to God's good counsel. He's talking about the way Yahweh leads him and cautions him and corrects him. The way the Lord speaks to him. How does the Lord do this? Kids, you know how God speaks to us. How does the Lord speak to us today? Through his word, right? Through the Bible. Now, David was far from perfect. We know this. But he was one of Israel's few good kings. And maybe the best. And so as a good king, he knew what his job was. And part of his job we see in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 19. Israel's king was meant to know and love God's word. This is what the Lord says in those verses. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord, his God, by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This was something David practiced. We see it constantly in the Psalms. He's meditating on God's word. He's thinking about God's word day and night. He's internalized it. This is why he says in verse 7, Even in the night my heart instructs me. Even in these difficult seasons of life, in these night times, the Lord provides instruction to him through the word that David has meditated on. And it's easy to worry at night isn't it? You're exhausted from the day. There's no more distractions. Your body is still, but your mind is not still. It wanders. And it often goes places that you would rather it not go. As you lay still on your pillow, you're unable to sleep because you're thinking about all the things to to worry about, all the things that you wish had gone differently in that day, all the anxieties you have about the future. This is a common human experience. These sleepless nights. But David says that even in the night, the Lord gives him counsel and instructs him. Of course, he says his heart instructs him. But we have to remember what heart he's talking about. David's talking about the new heart that he's received from the Lord. His mind, his will, his desires have been shaped by God's grace. And thus, it really is the Lord who's instructing David in these sleepless nights. He's able to recall God's promises And be encouraged. He finds hope in the gospel that the Holy Spirit has applied deep in his heart. Then in verse 8, David writes, The Lord is always before him and at his right hand, and as a result, he will not be shaken. Setting the Lord before him is another way of speaking about 
uh, this idea that David is meditating on the Lord's word consistently. He's continuously thinking about God. He's attentive to the Lord. And in this way, God goes before him, leading him down a path of safety through his word. And God is beside him at his right hand, the right hand being the place of support and protection. And so you could think of this in parental terms. Kids, if you've already learned how to ride a bike, how did your parents help you with that? Well, after the training wheels come off, I would guess that they probably ran alongside you as you were pedaling, holding on, making sure that you didn't tip one way or the other and fall and hurt yourself. And so the poetic image David is giving us in this verse is that he's like a young boy learning to ride his bike and the Lord is running alongside him, holding him up, keeping him safe. This second part of verse 8 is really essentially what this psalm is about. David knows that if Yahweh is on his right side, no harm will befall him. Now he's not saying that his life will be pain-free or problem-free because of his faith in the Lord. But he is claiming that God brings him a security that transcends his circumstances and even his own feelings about his circumstances. The Lord is our Heavenly Father, and he cares for us as his children. Fourth and finally, in verses 9 through 11, we see David extol God's good promise of future resurrection. He says that his flesh dwells secure. Because of God's goodness, and also his soul will not be abandoned to Sheol. God saves us completely, body and soul. And David knows that God's protection extends even beyond the grave. Now, we know he felt deserted occasionally. This is the same man who asked in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we also know that David knew that he was mortal. He wasn't going to uh, escape death. But he also knew, as all believers in our gracious covenantal Lord know, that death is not the end. There is another life beyond death. David is confident that his flesh dwells secure because he knows God is a God of resurrection. Even when I die, David says, that's not the end for me. He's looking beyond this life, which is another confirmation that his hope ultimately is in heaven. Where does the path of life lead? Where can fullness of joy be found? Where are pleasures forevermore? In God's presence, at his right hand. David knows that even if his circumstances never improve, even if he continues to suffer with whatever he's dealing with at this time, the rest of his life, this life is not the only life there is. In faith, he looks forward to a new life, in a new body, in the new creation. And dwelling on that gives him gladness. So this reminds us that at least in part, our contentment is correlated to our mindset. If we have a worldly mindset and we focus on the things of this world, we'll demand the things of this world to feel secure. Health and and wealth and prosperity and security. We'll look for earthly signs of success. But with a heavenly mindset, a mindset fixed on the eternal hope that we have received in Christ, we won't demand any worldly blessing to feel satisfied. We can be glad simply knowing that one day we will dwell with our Savior and our Lord forever in peace and joy and perfect holiness. And that's what David reminds us here. 
So we've seen David's four observations about the goodness of God and how those things bring him gladness, even in his troubles. But there's one sort of issue with Psalm 16. Maybe you noticed it. In verse 10, it seems that David is saying that the Lord will not allow him to rot in the grave. And that's certainly how this psalm was interpreted over the years after it was written. But that's exactly what happened to David. He rotted in the grave, just like every other person who's been buried in the ground. So how do we solve this problem? Peter gives us the answer in Acts 2. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. So the Apostle Peter says that in Psalm 16, David was speaking as a prophet, not just a king. He knew by faith that he was not the ultimate king that God had promised to his people. The blessings his kingship brought to Israel, though they were many, were but mere crumbs compared to the blessings that David's greater son would bring. Not just to Israel, but to all people, to the whole world. And so David prophesied in Psalm 16 about this greater king. Even though my body will undergo decay, David says, the promised one will never experience that. And of course, that's what happened. Jesus' body was not abandoned to the realm of death. He conquered death. And so as the ultimate Davidic king, the words of Psalm 16 are Jesus' words. Like David, he suffered. He endured God's wrath his whole life, especially at the end, especially on the cross. And yet Jesus was also content and glad as David was. He had an unwavering trust in his heavenly father, in his goodness, and in his promises, which afforded the Lord perfect satisfaction. And because we are in Christ, because we've been brought near by his blood, as Paul reminded us earlier in Ephesians 2, we are now members of the covenant. And so the words of Psalm 16 become our words as well. Our bodies will not suffer decay. We'll be raised to life with incorruptible bodies to live forever in the pleasures of the new heavens and earth. Not only this, but all the other reasons for gladness we see in Psalm 16 are ours. Because we're in Christ, his father is our father. We belong to God and he belongs to us. He's our covenant Lord. Because we're in Christ, we're all brothers and sisters. We belong to one another as well. We have the privilege of loving and serving one another, worshiping with one another. Because we're in Christ, we can offer true worship to the true God. When we gather each Lord's Day, we're not wasting our time. The Holy Spirit is here. God is serving us, his means of grace. He's blessing us as we bring our sacrifices of praise to him. Because we're in Christ, we have a heavenly perspective on our circumstances. Even though our earthly lives may not measure up to the lives of those around us by worldly standards, our faith in Christ allows us to be glad in any circumstances because we know That whether our lives are filled with easy or difficult providences, it is the very same Lord who gave his only son for us 
who is our portion, who holds our lot and assigns us our inheritance. And finally, because we're in Christ, we look ahead to the world to come. Our hope is secure. No matter what happens in this life, we're assured that we will be with God forever in the next. And so during those nights, or whenever it is that the worries and anxieties swarm your mind, you can think about the goodness of your God. You can turn to Psalm 16 and feel the same gladness David felt as the Lord gave him the counsel and the comfort of his word. It's certainly no guarantee that your worries will disappear or that your circumstances will improve. Nevertheless, this is a powerful reminder to us that the ultimate cause of our satisfaction is unchanging. Now and for all eternity, God is ours and he is with us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are incapable of expressing the gratitude we feel for all the promises you've made to us and will keep for us in Jesus Christ. We know how unworthy you are, and yet you have blessed us out of your mercy and grace. Above all, we have you, our covenant Lord. We have the covenant community, our brothers and sisters in the faith. We have worship. We have the assurance that everything we experience comes from your fatherly hand. We have the counsel of the gospel, all your promises that bring us comfort amid our anxiety. And we have the hope of resurrection. So, Lord, let us recall these truths, these secure blessings in Christ in our moments of crisis. May we not deny our troubles or ignore them, but rather with David find gladness in the confession that you are our Lord. We ask all this in the unmatched name of Jesus Christ. Amen.